Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Guys, Anita and I are both complete disasters. So enjoy this shortened blah, blah before the interview. Up next is the most amazing Patreon shout-out ever, spoken by one of Anita's children. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's time to do our Patreon shout-out. Now, my youngest child got to do it a couple weeks in a row, and my other kids got a little jealous. So I'm going to let number two help us out today to say thank you to all our patrons. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. The first one you have to sing a song for. What song are you going to sing? I don't know. Smoke on the Water, maybe? Or <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking of some random song. Okay, ready? Song. We'll go. Widow on the Water. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, ready? Yep. Widow on the Water, yeah. Okay, great. Next, here we go. Okay. And. Nope, nope. She's done. Go here. Oh, sorry. Constance Bell. The what? Dahlbeck. Dahlbeck. David. Don. Satterwhite. Satterwhite. Emily Wesenberg. Gail Belly. Bell. 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 <laughs> Heather Mullis. Mullins. Ivan Mincer. <laughs> Meisner. <laughs> Meisner. Cat. 
Krista Waite, Maya Glasser, Neil Hopper, and what? Just what? Neil Hooper. Neil Hooper, Sam Finlayson, Amber Alanzi Vela, Amy Hartman Martzell, Amy Neal, Ashley Han, Barbara Schneiderberger, 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 Brandy Younger, Brittany Perdero, Pedro, Pedro, Chris Steffen. Cindy Wilkser, Wilkerson, Wilkerson, Danielle Katterberg, DeBron Nicklick. <laughs> Say not a Debbie Downer. Nani Navalegla. <laughs> what? No, not a Debbie Downer. Nobby Demi Downer. Not. Not a Debbie Downer. Not a Debbie Dammer. <laughs> Sorry. Uh. Ashley Han. No. Oh, right sorry. Here. Not a Debbie Downer. Not a Debbie Downer. Dennis Brozo. Jean Mary Massey. Jen O'Brien. Jenny Taylor. Jennifer Beale. Jennifer Brown. Jenny Wang. Jesse Johnson. Carol Skull- Schools. Schultz. Oh. Schultz, uh, Kelly Ford, Kristen Stormberg, Stromberg, Laura Argie Penner, Lauren Old, Lau Clauson, Lou Clauson, Lou Clauson, Mary Hom Hoffman, Marie Hoffman, Mary Hoffman, Mary Ker Ker what? Catherine Anderson, Meg Murto. Welcome, Meg. Welcome, Meg. Patrick Weist. Patricia. Patricia Weist. Rachel Barbosa. Ooh, that's a cool name. Sora Morris. Sino Fu. Simone Fu. Simone Fu. Sunshine Haven. Sylvia Shore. Taylor Snender. Just do this part. No, I gotta do it all. The Winehouse Karen Corn G Corio Joe <laughs> Amy Burke. More? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Wait. And, nope. Mm, I can't remember. Yeah, do her. Anne Drenaman. Anna Trace. Anna. Anna Trace. Tracy. Audrey Henniger. You said that better than me. Christina Scamabago. I mean... (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sorry, everyone, if I pronounce your name wrong. Uh, These are very confusing names. Christine Anderson. Cindy Raynard. Renard. Is that it? Raynard. Raynard. Connie Remich. Dawn Barber, Debbie Fells, Deborah Woods, Westwood, Diana Becker, Emily Tolodo, Eric Van Der Moulin, 
Aaron Posick, Gabe Lanonzo, Loza No, sorry, uh, Gabeyond, Gia Benoit, Benoit, Gia Benoit, Gia Benoit, Gia Benoit, sorry, Gina Hass, Ian, is that it? Ian. Ian. Sini. Sini. Elena Bell. Eliana Bell. Uh, Jackie Coyle. Yeah! Jane. My grandma. Uh, another secret patron. Another secret patron. Jennifer Davis. Jenny Armstrong. Jenny Barrow. I know you. Jocelyn Milo. Johnny Walker. Hello. Hello. Now say Judy Malkin. Judy Malkin. Karen Okocho. No, you forgot oh, this one. Julie Stevens. Son. Stevenson. Karen Ocho. Ochoa. Ochoa. Karina Jacobo. Katie Murillo. Kathy. Kathy Murillo. Kathy Murray. K- Katie Goats. Katie Radcliffe, Carol Pratt, Prattwit, Kevin Ferry, Chris Morgan, Lauren Kelly, Laura Keeley, Keeley, Linson Konopalko, Laura Farin Takan, Farin Stop, stop, take a pause. Sorry. Running off the rails here. Try again. Farin Gunton. Farrington. Farrington. Sorry about this. Uh, Major Lewis. Marjorie Lewis. Marjorie Lewis. Marianne Hammond. Marianne McDonald's. I mean McDonald. Sorry. Mary McGowan. Megan Montagu. Melissa Bow- Bowers. Melissa Hancock. Nomi Brown. Rebecca Oklamacher. Rebecca Zilba. Robin Flam. Stacy Seawert. Tammy Turafzd. Tara Walson. Trenton Thomas. Thompson. Valerie Packer. Wendy. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon. Yeah, and... remember to buy our merch. Sorry for everyone, I got your names wrong. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon. I did not help him with most of those names. So those were just the fresh reading. And you guys, we could be doing a lot worse. But how is it that you could say Audrey Henninger when I can't even say it? I don't know. We're so excited for today. This is probably the only person in the world who could make us excited to record today because Mel and I are both hating our lives right now. So thank you for doing that for us. Like we haven't even been talking to each other. That's how bad we've been doing. That's bad, Anita. I know. It's not great. Um, Who are we talking today to, Mel? We are talking to the one and only Minhee England. Yes! Applause, applause, applause. Applause. Okay. If you don't know who she is, then pause this podcast right now. Go find your nearest tablet, phone, or TV. 
go to Netflix and watch season three of Blown Away. We'll wait. Okay, and we're back. <laughs> Minhi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Anita and Mel, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I really appreciate you asking me to uh, come onto your podcast. It means a lot to me. Um, and also, just to get it out of the way, are we going to talk about spoilers? I I think we have to almost. I think Don't you so. think? Like yeah. I feel like the. Uh... Yeah, I feel like the uh, the statute of limitations on spoiler alerts has passed. It's not like the episodes just came out yesterday. I agree. Also, we've said spoiler like 20 times. So if you don't know already, we're going to spoil <laughs> <laughs> the end of the show. And we gave you time to go watch. So it's on you all now. It's on you. Absolutely. So where do we even begin? I feel like there's so much to talk about. First of all... I want you to know that you have been highly requested by our group. They were like, you have to get her on. So we're we're doing a solid to everybody who's requested that we talk to you. And today I went to the salon and I was telling the lady that we were going to interview somebody. To, and I was like, have you watched this show? And she's like, oh, yes. So then I felt like almost famous, like third degree <laughs> famous or something. So for those who have not watched that don't care about the spoiler alert... Minhi, tell us what you do and why you're on the show. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But the Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, so I am a professional glassblower, uh, and I am both an independent glass artist as well as uh, the lead manager for a production company. So what that means is I facilitate the manufacturing of glass memorials for a company called Artful Ashes. And yes. And so uh, a little bit more about that company. As far as I know, this company was the first to make glass memorials made with human cremains available to the public. Um, there may have been other people that did it, but generally speaking, from what I understand, it was like you had to know someone. You had to have a friend, and they would do you a solid favor in order to do this. And so glass is notoriously very finicky, and it doesn't like when you put stuff inside of it. That's not... It doesn't like, it doesn't like bodies in it. <laughs> but somehow cremains work with glass. Somebody figured this out at some point. Um, and actually, 
little side tidbit, some glass colors are made with bone ash in order to create the color. Which ones? So specifically opalines, so opal white. Um, Some people will call like an opaline stone a stone, but it's not. It's just glass. It's glass color. No way. I have so many questions. We could go down every single rabbit hole for like two and a half hours. And you know what's so awesome? People listening that don't know the situation might be like, oh, that's cool. They're going to talk about like glass and cremains. And that's why Minhi's here. But guess what? Actually, Minhi is one of us. Boo. Boo. She's a widow. So she is super cool (laughs) and fashionable and awesome and a widow. So let's back up. And let's learn a little bit about your person. You want to tell us about him? Yeah, I would love to. So my person, his name was Jesse. I still say is all the time. (laughs) Uh, I lost Jesse about a year and a half ago now. Um, And we found each other through glass. So yeah, we met in 2012 at Pilchuck Glass School. And the reason why we were connected so quickly is because we both had similar interests, not just in glass, but also in metal. And we had this intense fascination with trying to put these two materials together that didn't want to be together. (laughs) So uh, when we first started talking to each other, we're like, oh my gosh, I also love trying to force glass and metal together. Cool, let's talk more about that. And we just had this immediate connection we spent probably two and a half weeks together at Pilchuck Glass School and then kept talking beyond that. I was the one who was like, mm, I don't know about long distance. At the time, he was still getting his master's degree at uh, University of Texas in Arlington. And that's a three-year program, which is unusual for a master's in fine art. Uh, so he was in his last year. I was a fresh professional in the Seattle area. And so I was really not super stoked about this whole idea of doing long distance. But he was he was very persistent and also very sweet. So I kept mm-hmm. talking to him. And before long, we I <laughs> made the decision to kind of let him in. And we did the long distance thing for about nine months. And he moved out to Seattle. Aww. So yeah. So I feel like this is kind of where art meets reality right because you were trying to force two things together that lived far apart and then you were ultimately able to do it yes and I see this thread happening as an artist that there's such a parallel between actual life and then an art practice and oftentimes you don't really realize that that thread is happening until many years down the road that Mm -hmm. you know these concepts that I'm seeing in my art is actually very pertinent to what's happening in my life. And maybe it's subconscious, I don't know. But it's pretty interesting actually to look back at, yeah. It's almost like art is a religion in a way. Absolutely. Did you grow up in the Seattle area? I didn't. So I actually grew up in upstate New York. I've told this story uh, several times over this weekend um, because I was just doing some public events where people wanted to meet me and I did a demo. So lots of people asked me how I got into glass. So I got into glass um, 
because it was suggested to me by my high school art teacher. Uh, I was a painter, which got me scholarship to Alfred University. And that's where I first started glass. And then I immediately was like, stop everything. I'm pivoting everything to become a glass maker. I'm so in love with this material. And I changed my major. Um, I heard about Seattle. I was like, oh, there's glass in Seattle. Also, it's really far away from my hometown. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I made it out to Seattle. And I fell in love with the area. It's just so beautiful. There's water, there's mountains, there's snow if you want it. If you don't want it, you don't have to go find it. Uh, the people are great. The culture is wonderful. There's tons of art. Um, yeah, so immediately after graduating, I went out to Seattle, found the glass community. But it's tough. It's tough out there, you know, trying to make a living off of millionaire. glass. <laughs> yeah, you know, especially nowadays, it's it's very, like, tech-heavy. It's... I don't know. I just feel like this industry of glassmaking is so old school, you know, we're like melting glass into a molten material and uh, using these really old tools that still have to be made by hand, super expensive. So we're constantly trying to bring back the excitement into glassmaking, uh, which does kind of lead up to what we'll talk about a little bit later. Some reasons for why I did the show. Yes. So let's let me ask you. So you decided finally that you and Jesse, you would do the long distance thing. And then he ends up moving to Seattle. And this is when your relationship like went to the next level. Yes. You were like, yeah. that's real commitment. Yeah, totally. You know, because Seattle is such an expensive place to live we went from this super romantic long distance phone relationship to like living together and seeing each other every day. And then I also got him a job where I was working. So we were also working together every day. And there, I remember there got to this point where I was just like, "Ugh, I just, I hate how you put jam on your bread. You know, <laughs> you get to this point where you're like, Oh my gosh, you're around me all the time. Um, but we worked through that. We started making art together. Again, it's another thing where you can really butt heads. So you have to really learn how to be with each other and how to compromise. You really have to learn that compromise. And we did that for, gosh, um, a long time. We did it for a really long time. We were super broke, <laughs> uh, but we worked really well together. So all of our managers, all of our bosses recognized that we were like this money-making dream team. And so they would often put us together at work because we just were a solid team. We worked really, really well together. Um, but because it was so expensive, we ultimately decided to make a five-year plan, which was to build our own studio, to save money, to buy a home, and um, it was very intense. We worked multiple jobs, um, and these are factory jobs, very labor-intensive physical jobs. I often say that being a glassmaker is like the athlete of the art world. You know, we're That's like rad. <laughs> we're like lifting heavy things all the time. You know, we're around these really intense. 
um, environments like super high heat, um, just constantly sort of pushing your body's limits just to be able to work with glass. And when you're making the same object again, every five minutes, you can't stop. You got to keep going to get your numbers. It sort of takes a toll on your body. You're not selling it right now, Minhee. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough work. Also, I feel like you guys shot yourself in the foot by making a five-year plan. Because tell us what happened to your five-year plan. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, we were able to work through the five-year plan because we were together. Oh, you made for... it through five years? What? We yeah. did. Could we what? talk okay. about this timeline? Like, I'm, yes. when, when did you, when did he move to Seattle? So Jesse moved to Seattle in 2013 okay okay we, we met in 2012 2013 he moved to seattle um and then we made it through our five-year plan we bought a house we built oh. a studio oh yeah you did it and we did we did so that would but be there were... 2018 Tw yeah 20 2017 2018 is when like the five-year plan started to really come together um, but there were certainly a lot of, you know, bumps along the way. I felt really pushed, um, trying to make these goals. We didn't go on vacation. We didn't go see family. We just worked all the freaking time. Um, when we weren't at our jobs, we were at home building our studio that took six months to build. Um, but we managed to build this little micro hot shop, which I still use to this day. It's really fantastic, very well built. Uh, so we did. We managed to to make to hit these really big goals, and so we get to this point where we're, we're like, okay, we did it. We like built this life. It's so great, and um, now it's time to like live our lives. And then in 2019, Jesse started growing a lump on his ankle. Oh, and. Yeah, and that's when things started to go really awry. So he goes and gets it checked out at the doctor. The doctor's like, oh yeah, you know, it's probably just a cyst, no big deal. We're not gonna biopsy it. It feels hard. It's gonna be like difficult to biopsy. And so Jesse being the person that he was, he was like, oh, you're a doctor, all right, cool. That sounds great. Um, I'm just not going to worry about it because that's easier than worrying about it. Yeah. <laughs> so some time goes by, the lump grows bigger and bigger. He goes back to the doctor. The doctor says the same thing. It's nothing to worry about. About We can remove it, but honestly, it's probably just going to grow back. And it gets to this size that eventually his friends and family are like, dude, that thing looks messed up. <laughs> like, you should, I don't know. I don't know about what this doctor is saying. Um, it starts growing to the size that it became uncomfortable for him to wear shoes, to put on socks. Um, and so I said, you know what, Jesse, I'm going to the doctor with you and I'm going to tell them that this is BS. Like they need to do something about this. So what they tell him is that they can't biopsy it unless they remove it first. So they get him signed up to get the surgery. Um, they remove the mass, biopsy it. And then it takes forever for them to get the results back to us. I think it took about seven weeks. 
Whoa. It was nuts. And even the surgery itself took a really long time. I remember waiting in the waiting room and they're like, this is going to be really quick. It'll take probably three hours, like eight hours later. Oh, wow. They finally come out and they're like, oh, it's going to be a little bit longer. Um, he's OK. You know, everything's OK. And yeah, so they they remove it. And little did we know that that was actually not the, the best choice for him. So what? what we come to learn is that if the tumor is encapsulated, if it's they kind of uh, compared it to like an orange that but the tumor is growing inside of, you know, a casing. And once you burst that casing open, then that's when the cells are able to travel throughout mm. the body. Mm. So, um, yeah. And it's like, people don't tell you this stuff, you know, where do you learn that that's what's going to happen? Well, I mean, isn't ahead, the no. other option, like you never, take it out and so then it still keeps growing like it's kind of like you're damned if you do damned if you don't right that's exactly what i was gonna say you just wanted to say damn twice (laughs) (laughs) you know it (laughs) well we then later find out that they totally could have biopsied it Mm -hmm. and but you know you get all these different opinions from all these different people who's right who's wrong does anybody really know i don't know just like you say I think you're right. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. And you're just left wondering, like, well, what if? What if I had mm-hmm. done this? It could have been different. It was my fault, you know. <laughs> what did the biopsy finally come back as? So the biopsy comes back and they say, well, we're not totally sure <laughs> that this is what it is, but we're going to operate as if this is what it is. And it's a soft tissue sarcoma called malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor. Okay. MPNST for short. And it grows off of the sheath of your nerves. And mm. the reason that they were unsure was because the placement was kind of odd, that it was on the top of his ankle as opposed to the side, I suppose, or the back. And I thought that was really odd that they were like, we don't really know if this is what it is, but we're going to act like it is. And then from that point on, that's what it was. That's just what everyone assumed. That's what it was. So from that point, um, he had to heal from that surgery. And what had happened is that the cells scattered. And so instead of having one lump, he started, it started to come back. And it grew as like a bunch of little lumps up his ankle. And they said, well, you know, we're we're sort of mulling over all the possibilities. The margins were really big. There were five centimeter margins. And you don't have a whole lot going on on the top of your ankle. So to basically cut out a five centimeter hole in order to get the margins of the cancer cells, what doesn't leave you with much left in the way of an ankle. So they said, we can do it, but we're gonna end up having to fuse your ankle. You're not gonna have any movement. It's probably gonna be very painful for the rest of your life. We might not get it all. Um, we may have to amputate down the road. Um, and if they do that, then 
because of the way that your nerves are, like you'll probably still feel that pain forever, even if we end up cutting it off. So the options are not great. <laughs> so we're like, okay, well, we could also amputate. And ultimately that's what, what we had decided to do. And so we, Jesse was like this insanely optimistic person. And so we're like, yeah, it'll be cool. You know, you'll be like the bionic <laughs> glass blowing man. And maybe we can like make, you know, different prosthetics for you, or, you know, you'll, you'll get to dress up like a pirate and all these things. <laughs> make it out of glass and metal. Yeah, like, that's yeah. a terrible idea. <laughs> but you could really art up, you know, make a really cool socket for a prosthetic. That'd be, you could have like five of them, except for they're too expensive. So never mind. Can't yeah, but, you know, I would be lying if I said that we didn't dream up like all the art possibilities, you know, like, well, you could just wear it for an art opening and then put your real one back on. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we were really hopeful though. He goes through with the amputation, the below knee amputation, and he was such a freaking trooper. Oh my gosh. I remember going to the hospital, getting ready, you know, in the surgery room and he's like smiling. He's like doing this, like, we're ready. We're going to do this. Um, and then even after he comes out, He's like all doped up and he's laughing and having a great time. And he just had such a great attitude throughout the whole process. It was a lot more work than what we ever could have imagined. You know, just the, all of the physical therapy and you go through so many um, sockets in that beginning trial, you know, that first year, the, your his leg changed so much and the muscle atrophies and then and they just kept telling us you know once you hit that one year mark that's usually when it kind of stabilizes so that was like our next goal we're like okay you got to make it to that one year mark because um, that's when you know you don't have to keep going back in and getting a new socket and then we can really start to bedazzle your foot and <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so we think that, you know, he's in the clear, uh, naturally they keep doing tests and scans to see, to make sure that the cancer didn't spread. Um, and they did find a spot in his lung, but always People wanting spots to spots in positive. lungs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as a glass blower, we're breathing like heavy metals and all kinds Perfect. of nasty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we're like, yeah, you know, it's probably that. And Jesse was a smoker too. So we're like, yeah, it's probably nothing. We're hoping it's nothing. And I think maybe about six months in after, after having gone through with the amputation, the spot grows and then he starts getting other spots in his lungs. Um, and so that's when, that's when it became pretty clear that the cancer had metastasized. Mm. And, you know, it's really hard to get this information out of your doctors. But one day, Jesse sits down and he looks at the doctor and he's like, listen, doctor, just just give it to me. Like, <laughs> just tell me what what what's my timeline? Like, let's say 
that it's metastatic. You're telling me that it is, that it's spread to my lungs. Like, what is my timeline? And he says, well, Jesse, on average, people with this cancer that you have only live about 18 months. Wow. So it's, it's fast. It happens really fast, you know, in the, in the scheme of, um, metastatic cancer. Some people live a lot longer. And for Jesse, that was on the nose. That's how long he lived. Was that 18 months? Uh, you know, I feel like the healthcare system really let you down in this instance. It was like everything went wrong. And I feel so bad that you guys went through all of that difficulty in the amputation with this like hope that it was going to solve everything. And then it just feels like what was it for? I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm assigning that to you and you didn't feel that way, but that's how I imagine feeling. Yeah. You know, it's for two very healthy people to go to the doctor for something that very well could be benign. You know, we want to believe that that's what, what it is. And if I had any advice to give to other young people that are otherwise very healthy, it's like you have to advocate for yourself. If you have something growing on your body at an alarming rate and your doctor is telling you it's no big deal, I mean, logically, I think all of us are like, I don't know, it doesn't seem right. (laughs) You're probably right. It's probably not, you know, something to overlook. And yeah, and it sort of leaves me feeling like, well, I should have pressed him harder. I should have done this and I should have done that. We could have prevented this. And sadly, there is some truth to that. If if we had just totally ignored all of the advice from the doctor and really pressed, you know, it's, it is possible that it could have been taken care of and that he would be alive today. Um, I hate this story. No offense. I know. It's rough. So you became a widow, fun times. And how old were you when you became a widow? So when Jesse died, I was 32 and Jesse was 37. And yeah, I witnessed, you know, all the things that a person my age should never have had to go through. You know, he... And there are so many parts about it. Like he just, there are some things that still make me laugh. I remember one of the last, you know, maybe it was like the last month that he was alive. He started to look like a grandpa because of all the chemo and his hair Mm -hmm. turned white and his skin got really thin and his face started to kind of sink in a little bit. And he was sitting there and he says, you know, a lot of people are probably looking at me and thinking that, like, I look totally fine. <laughs> I, didn't say I didn't say anything at the time, but I'm thinking, mm, I don't know, Jesse, you look like you look like, you know, you've gone through the chemo ringer. <laughs> and but he just I don't know, I guess maybe he just always saw himself as the, the healthy young man that. Sometimes it's hard to see it in yourself, you know, when you're living with that change. Yeah, it's easier for other people to see it. So along those lines, did you and Jesse ever talk about the possibility of end of life? Or was he like, nope, I'm going to beat this the whole way through? 
Um, he was definitely very hopeful, very optimistic, but we did talk about those things. But at the same time, um, some things were sort of, I don't want to say overlooked, but were just too hard to deal with because he yeah. was already so tired and in so much pain that it was just like, uh, go to the bank and make you my beneficiary. I don't, I don't have the energy for that. You know, so some things definitely uh, did not get taken care of, despite mm -hmm. having known that it was highly likely that he was going to um, lose the fight against the cancer. And I, I use the beneficiary part as an example because that actually happened, and I had to, I had to go through that whole nightmare. Were you guys married? You were married, right? We were married. Yeah. So um, shortly after, well, he proposed to me, I think before the cancer diagnosis. And then after he started chemo, we were like, you know what, screw it, let's just do it. And we planned a wedding in two weeks, we got married. It was during the pandemic. So there's only like a handful of our friends there. And it was really great. And he was bald. <laughs> and we had this tiny little wedding out in at our friend's property out in the woods. He was like all worried, like, oh, I don't have a suit to wear. And one of our friends had bought him this totally ridiculous tracksuit that was covered in <laughs> tigers. And I was like, wear your tracksuit. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what he got married in. Uh, that's awesome. It's kind of like, it's what we all kind of remember him, his fashion sense by now which I think is really great because it just makes everyone smile. <laughs> I love it. So you said that you'd, you've been a widow only about 18 months at this point right now, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've yeah. already done a show. How? Like, I remember watching you on the show and I'm just like, how is she even going? Because I know what I was doing 18 months out and it was not glass blowing on a tv show how did that come about and how tell us that whole process so um blown away is for for those who haven't watched it it's a competition Which, go watch it guys <laughs> come on it is a competition reality tv show uh 10 contestants are competing for best in glass um and every episode we each have to we each have a prompt we make an object in a certain amount of time and then it gets critiqued and judged. And this show is fairly new. So there's only three seasons. I was on season three and Jesse and I watched season one and season two together. So we totally binged the show. We knew a couple of people who are on it. Um, and it's just this totally ridiculous show that is really cool because it it exposes this industry to people who otherwise may never you know have seen it so it's probably january of 2020 i think season two came out and jesse and i were spending a lot of time watching tv together that was basically how we spent our quality time because he didn't he just didn't have a lot of energy and even back in the day when we were working all the time that was what we did to relax and to have quality time together outside of work so we were doing a lot of that again and we watched season two we binged it all the way and jesse turns to me and he's like you know you really you really should go on this show like you're better than 
you know, so-and-so, you can do better we than want them. names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So he, I can't, I can't do the names. Like we're all like, all. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> uh, you know, and he's just trying to, to amp me up and he's like, you should do it. I really think that you could win, win this show. And I turned to him and I was like, Jesse, I'm never going to do this. I would never do that. But then a few months later, he, he died. And I never forgot that conversation that he was just so sure that I would go all the way. And nobody believes in me the way that Jesse did, you know? And so I guess part of it was in the spirit of keeping that alive and holding on to just how much he saw in me so much more than like I saw in myself oftentimes. And I always say this, that he sort of taught me how to love myself and how to acknowledge my talents and my skills. He he was that for me. So I think when the call came out for season three, I really wanted to believe or or see myself the way that Jesse saw me since he couldn't do it for me anymore. So the application process was like, you have to answer a bajillion questions about yourself. And the questions are super ridiculous. One of the questions is, what do people say about you behind your back? <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't even know how you would know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. You answer all these questions about yourself and then you make a little video that talks about yourself, talks about your artwork. Um, and naturally, a big chunk of my video was about Jesse. And it was like, this is what we built together. This is the artwork we made together. He just died. And I've spent so much of my life caring for other people that I think it's time for me to do something for myself. And from what I'm told, like Netflix loved me and they pushed me all the way through all of the interviews and I made it into the top 10 and then went on the show. And it was a crazy experience. You know, I, I really think that I was still in this zombie land. Like I, you know, I had like just started to not be a sobbing mess all the time. And I was like, I got this, you know, I, I can do this. I can, you know, live my life and, you know, make it through a whole day without crying, which is totally BS, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> How did people treat you when you were on the show? Because it's like you're there working. You're like TV is the whole thing. Um, not a lot of people know the widow story. You know, we know it because we are widows. And so we know the ins and outs. But how is that? actually being a widow and dealing with other people that maybe don't get it. I'll break it in two parts. In the glass community, I feel very lucky that glass people are a very weird and <laughs> <laughs> they have this openness and um, ability to empathize with weird stories and unusual things that has carried me through so like after jesse died i had his celebration of life at pilchuck glass school where we met and a bunch of people came out and you know we we talked about how glass is this thing that connects all of us together and how we're the, a community and we need each other particularly in times like this so glass people are great 
I've only experienced a couple of instances where I've made like a morbid widow joke and then the person I was talking to just like turned around and walked away. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. That's, I was so kidding. That's what we're doing. <laughs> okay. Um, but overall, people are really sweet and very empathetic, very compassionate. But, you know, there's always this fear that I have that I like constantly make people uncomfortable, that just my presence is uncomfortable for other people. And I'm still deciphering whether or not that's real or that's just in my head. I still don't totally know. Maybe a combination. And then there's the, uh, the production team. And so their main goal is to make good TV. So I think that there's a certain amount of separation that they have from us because we're, we're characters in a TV show. And although our stories are based off of real life, ultimately their goal is to make a good show. So they have this like insane ability to kind of poke and prod in ways that uh, you wouldn't experience in a day-to-day -day conversation. So being a widow was certainly a huge part of my story. And while I wanted to talk about it all the time, there were also times where I didn't want to talk about it hmm. and they would ask me anyway. And I think they had to know, you know, sometimes that it wasn't really something I wanted to talk about that day, but they would ask me anyway. And that was interesting to navigate. But at the same time, I went into it knowing that that was my story, you know, that was, and it is my story. It's such a big part of who I am today. I would say because I was there for so long, I was there for the entire season. By the, <laughs> by the last <laughs> couple of weeks, I just would like, you know, like give them this look. Like, I'm not talking about that right now. Um, and I got really good at being able to sort of stand up for myself if, if, it just wasn't the time. It, it became a lot. I definitely felt like sometimes they like wanted me to cry and they would intentionally talk about things that were sensitive to me to evoke that response. That's so interesting because when I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, like, I feel like they think of it as a gimmick, but I'm like, it's not, you know, it's really hard to express how it's not a gimmick, but for them, it is a gimmick. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, it is my story. And yes, this is it. But also, like you're saying, kind of like maybe how they present it. Does it seem disingenuous? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I also thought it was really interesting that when I was watching the show, I felt like we got a little bit in before... You talked about it. You talked about your story. And that was probably a decision of theirs, you know, when to introduce that. But I was like, no, that's like the only thing, <laughs> you know, like that's like the only thing that matters is that this is my story. Like just thinking of myself at your time period, like that was mm -hmm. the only thing I thought of like all the time. There was yeah. nothing else in my brain. So I was like, that's so weird that like it took this long to get to that, which also. Yeah, I mean, that's all editing because on the very yeah. first episode, um, I definitely told, you know, in the interview portion, I told them my story. I told them all about Jesse. And I think 
I remember someone saying to me like, yeah, we probably won't talk about it in the first episode if you make it that far. (laughs) So it was sort of like this, uh, they knew, you know, they're like, depends on how long you make it. That's how we're going to decide when to tell your story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, too, like all reality shows, it's like, it's not always, I don't know, it's so contrived with who is on it. It's like they have to fill, like you said, it's like their characters. I mean, that doesn't mean yeah. that you are not good at what you do. But, you know, anytime I watch a reality show, I'm just like, okay, what's the editing like? What really happened? And how are the producers with this? And what actually yeah. went on behind the scenes? So, yeah, I just was impressed that you were able to be upright and doing the things and doing such a good job. So I went in to the experience like on a mission you know I was like on a mission to like prove that Jesse was right and I I don't know I just had this fire uh behind everything that I did and I was super excited and that pushed me through and then as I started so particularly episode nine where I title my piece referencing this podcast I was destroyed I was totally, totally devastated after that. And you would never be able to tell watching it, but I was just like, I couldn't function after mm. making that piece. I was so devastated. Um, like just thinking about it brings tears to my eyes. It was so hard. And I was like mad, you know, like, I can't believe you guys want me to just like forget about that and then move on to the next thing. Like, this is crazy. I can't even eat. I can't, I can't do anything. Um, So that final episode was so much harder than even what they show. Like I was a mess. I stayed up all night the day before we filmed the, the final episode. I lost all confidence in myself. I just, it was like a 180, you know, after having to, I put so much of what I was going through into the making of that piece and it took a toll on me physically, emotionally, in every way that I was like, I don't know if I can go on. (laughs) I don't, you know, it was insanely emotional making that work. So I have a question. I mean, my daughter and I watched it and you know, the judging is subjective, right? There's no right or wrong answer. But at Mm -hmm. one point in time, I was like, how could anybody listen to your story and then say anything mean or anything like, I don't get this. I'm like, you would have to be a a real, like, I did not envy the judges having to judge that because it would just be like, oh, yeah, that that's, that's so good. You're the best. Um, Like, I'm so sorry, your husband died. Like, did you feel bad for them? (laughs) How did they do that? Uh, No, I did. I mean, it's tough because you're right. It is very subjective. And and also after the show premiered and hearing from the general public, I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages from other widows and even people who weren't widows um, talking about that piece in particular and saying, you know, like, yeah, I get it. I know what you're feeling. And, and it showed in the work that you made. And and I just think, particularly if you do have some kind of experience of loss, like you can connect yourself to the work. 
But if you have no reference point, then you're, it's just an object, right? There's no way you can emotionally tie yourself to the art. Uh, and yeah, it's not, it's not easy because on the show in particular, they're like, oh, well, we can't, you know, consider their stories. And it's like, well, what, what else is art other than, you know, a physical representation of your existence as a human being? <laughs> That's how I view it personally. I mean, but yeah, I don't, I don't envy them at all. I'm wondering if you would liken the widow experience to glass blowing experience. Glass gets melted. You work with all these elements. And as, as widows, we are kind of destroyed when this stuff happens. And I'm wondering if you saw parallels between what you do and also kind of what your experience has been with rebuilding yourself or just being decimated or like being pulled apart, being broken, all of those mm -hmm. things. Oh my gosh, all the time. I always find connections, you know, once one of my peers sort of referenced the process of gathering glass as being like giving birth to an art object, because when you're gathering the glass out of the furnace, there's like a string of glass that connects from the gather you just took from the, from the mass of glass in the furnace. And then if you stay there and keep turning, it separates and it's like cutting the umbilical cord. <laughs> the furnace is the mother and you're like birthing your little glass child. Um, and yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when glass breaks and you have to like melt it back together and heal it, there's only so much healing you can do there, but there'll always be like that scar, that, that crack, that reference to it have been broken, but you can try to melt it and it'll be together again, but it'll always have a scar. So I definitely feel very um, connected to my work that I, I almost always personify the material as if the material were me. There's so many parallels in the way that the process um, ties to just the experience of, of, of living. So I'm wondering also, you know, you're a fairly new widow. 18 months is not that long. It probably feels like a long time. But, you know, we talk about the transformation or the metamorphosis. You take an ugly glob of glass and then you turn it into something beautiful. Do you feel like you've had enough time that you're starting to see the creation that you're becoming? Or is it still too new to appreciate that you're going to be a new creation? It still feels still really an new. ugly blob. <laughs> yeah, it still feels really new, you know, and I, yeah. I still feel really lost. You know, I, I definitely feel like I'm still transitioning. Like I have not fully broken out of my cocoon yet. And, um, and it's, it's tough because since I had the exposure on the show, lots of people want me to be creative and I'm like I'm struggling I'm having a really hard time being creative um, and I'm trying but I just kind of go in and out of moments of feeling like I have good ideas to moments of like I just want to watch tv guys <laughs> but there's no time to do that um, yeah. 
I relate to that so much with music stuff. It's just like, no, I'm tired. My brain Mm -hmm. is tired. My body's tired. I'm grieving and I can't come up with anything. All I can do is breathe and like exist and maybe try to eat. Yeah. I, I feel that a lot. I feel it a lot, but I also am just trying to go through the motions, like in hopes that maybe I'll break through or, or at least have, you know, spurts of creativity or or at least some laughs you know at the very least just have a good time here and there so from an outsider's perspective i would expect that people think that you went on this show and it was like this wonderful experience and the point of the show was to heal you and so you've come out the other side and you've worked through all of your grief and you've worked through jesse dying and netflix has made you whole again. Is that your experience? And have people put that on you? Oh my gosh. Whether, so I have experienced people thinking that I'm pretty sure. And is that my experience? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. And there's this whole aspect to putting yourself out there, particularly in such a vulnerable way, like I did that actually left me feeling more broken afterwards. You know, I was really afraid of what people were going to think. Um, I was trying to be strong and hold strong in this this value of mine that I, I want to break down the walls of grief being taboo and not okay, but it doesn't make it less difficult. You know, it's still scary. It's still um, wrought with fears and insecurities and um yeah no i i definitely still still feel like my cracks are visible you know i still feel like i'm working through a lot um but i am getting used to it i guess i am starting to feel less freaked out about being in front of big crowds or talking to strangers and and it's all circumstantial so for example coming on this podcast was great i wasn't nervous at all which is pretty unusual you know but i know that everyone who's listening and the both of you have empathy and compassion and understanding for what my circumstance is so there's nothing to fear Um, But there are definitely other times where, you know, if I go to a public place that's maybe in a more conservative area that, you know, like talking about your feelings is is less less of a thing. Like I get a little fearful. But again, I still am trying to decipher whether or not it's just me being critical and afraid and if it's something that's actually happening. I never really know. It's so hard to tell because your brains are just like smushed up and you're just in the in the throes of life. I think too like when you're not talking to widows it's it's almost like I don't know if if this is your experience or not, but because they don't get the widow experience, it's almost like you're an advocate by default. And so then you have to determine, oh do I have the energy to say 
yes, and when this happens, when somebody dies, then this is also what happens and to try and educate people. But if you don't have energy for it, it's like, you know, it's it's just hard. So I can see how talking to not widows would be a little difficult. We forget that yeah. they don't know things. Yeah, yeah. And even sometimes, I don't know if this has been an experience that the two of you have felt, but even sometimes getting dozens of messages from other widows can be tough too, because I don't always feel like I have the best advice. You know, I can only say like, yeah, it sucks. I, I know how you feel, <laughs> but I don't really know how to tell you how to make it better. I'm trying to figure that out too. Um, but with that said, I love, I love getting messages from everybody. I love hearing other people's stories. It makes me feel connected. It makes me feel less alone. And um, I would never want that to stop. Yeah. So I have a really practical question. Okay. Not about what I should do. But... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't know. And that's, we we feel the same way. We're like, we don't know what you should do. I mean, yeah, yeah. that, we don't even know what we're doing. So yeah, we're just here supposed to tell you. Taking naps <laughs> and, yeah. and anxiety meds. So when you were filming the show, is the timeline of the show accurate? Like, are you making a piece like day after day after day? And did you stay on the campus of the show? Or was it like you would come back every week or? Does that make so, sense? Yeah, it was the timeline was accurate, with an exception to the confessional, um, which is like okay. the inter interview part. Um, which I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you guys this, but oh. um, we were interviewed like not all in one sitting, if that makes yeah. sense. So that was broken up. Um, and yeah, no, it was nonstop. We worked every single day. So the course of episode one all the way through to the end took six weeks. And in that six weeks, I got two days off. Jeez. Oh, man. Holy. Yeah. So let me just give you a little backstory. Minhi sent us a message and she said, I'm on a show that's about glass blowing, <laughs> but I can't tell you the name of it, which was like a super duper big mystery because there's so many of them out there. <laughs> She said, I want to name one of my pieces something about Widow. What do I do now? Can I use the name? And we were like, hell yes. Like, that's the coolest thing we've ever heard. <laughs> but I was curious, like, when did you decide the name of it? Like, had you already created it or were you going to create it? Or how did the how did that work? So, no. Okay. For that in particular, because I wanted your blessing to use the name, I had not created it yet. And I was like, I hope they get back to me by the end of the day because I need to <laughs> submit it to know. Okay. In a day. Um, yeah. So there's not much time. Mo a lot of the time I, it would be like, you make the thing and then the next day you have to submit your, your, you know, artist statement and the title. And I would like fill it out 15 minutes before they came and picked me up. <laughs> Because it was just so back to back to back, you know, there's only so much you could do. I tried to think about it, but, you know, when it comes down to timelines like that, I personally find that that last 30 minutes is when I 
really achieve, you know, um, the magic. Yes. <laughs> Nothing would get done if there wasn't for last minute, right? That's like all <laughs> creatives everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I think they don't they call it liminal space. It's like you oh. have to be forced. It's that end part where you're forced and then your brilliance comes out. I hate it. It's so stressful. I'm like, why can't I just be like this all the time when I have six months? Yeah, it is super stressful. I agree. So Minhi, this is another spoiler, but you made it to the very end and then they chose your rival, which was offensive to all the widows everywhere. (laughs) We do not agree with the decision. Were you mad? No. I actually wasn't. <laughs> I was because you actually... needed to prove Jesse right, and so it's like, come on, guys. Yeah, you know, if the circumstances were different, I may have been upset about it. But because because of what happened, because I was so deep in grief for that finale, I didn't feel like I represented myself fully. Um, I, I, yeah, I didn't feel great about what I made and, um, they added this thing into season three that they had never done before where they're like, and your finale is going to go to this, you know, world renowned museum. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I just... I was super freaked out. But at the same time, if they had picked me, I would have been super excited too. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> I didn't really know what to feel. Honestly, I was <laughs> such a mess. <laughs> what has come of it? Like, what are, have you had new opportunities? I mean, you said you've connected with lots and lots and lots of people, but you like professional opportunities or things in your life have changed? Yeah. So I have been so busy, so slammed since the show premiered and it's been totally crazy. I haven't had a day off, but at the same time, I'm like living my dream. I'm, I'm not just living my dream, but I'm living the dream that Jesse and I made together, which was to travel and to um, influence people and do demonstrations around the United States and have just exposure. So a really great example is this past week has been totally nuts. I was asked to teach at Pilchuck Glass School, which is incredible honor. Um, So I was there teaching, but I already had another obligation. So I was like, I can do it, but I have to leave halfway through. And so I went there on Sunday and then worked all the way through until 1 a.m., on Thursday morning so that I could catch a nine o'clock flight to fly out to Pittsburgh. So I could go do an auction. And then immediately after the auction in Pittsburgh drove to Columbus to go do a demo at a studio there. And then just drove back to Pittsburgh to start my residency, which is a week long. And so it's been nuts. There's been no rest, uh, which has been both exhausting, but also really great because it's a great distraction. But it's a lot. It's been a lot. It's been really fun. Living <laughs> it just t- keeps coming. The tour life. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. oh, man. So that's just one week. But every week has been like that, basically, since the show came out. People love you. 
I mean, yeah. come on, why wouldn't they? Oh, that's it's so thing. great. I know it feels really good. Sometimes I question it. I'm like, do they love me? No, but they do. Yeah. <laughs> they better. But I'm super grateful. <laughs> yeah. Well, Minhi, it's been an honor to have you talk to us today. So thank you so much. And before we let you go, I think Anita has one more question for you. It's very important. I happen to know that Beecher's is in Seattle. So what's your favorite cheese, Minhi? Oh, my favorite cheese. So my favorite cheese has been Swiss cheese. And oh, I don't know man. <laughs> I don't know what it is because I know it's like not a very flavor flavorful cheese, but I just for some reason it's always my go-to. But besides besides Swiss cheese, I love soft cheeses. I love goat cheese, um especially when it's mixed with berries. And I love brie. I love um mozzarella, fresh mozzarella. Yeah. But then uh, we'll keep you. Yeah, I also love uh, sharp cheddar, especially when it has the salt crystals in it. Yeah. Oh, Minhi, thank you so much for joining us. You have made us feel so special that you accepted our invitation to be on the podcast. And hopefully people will love to get to hear from you and hear a little bit of insight about the show and also some of the under the surface things that maybe they chose not to show you know, because it's only about yeah. it's only about good TV. So it's been really fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One thing I totally forgot to mention to you guys is that the first like six months, I just listened to your podcast Aww. all the way through. And that's <laughs> the only thing that got me through the day. So thank you guys Aww. so much. You're so welcome. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Listening. Make sure you check out the Widow Wives Club. Min, he is in there. So if you want a fangirl in there, you can or fanboy, I guess. Um, <laughs> if you want to keep the podcast going, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you'd like to buy us tacos, go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. Until we get to talk to you again, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And I'm Minhi. We are two young widows and one glass blowing extraordinaire. And we're all just trying to figure out, widow, we do, do now. <laughs> this is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what well, is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not. Who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? 
Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.